90% of all scientists that have ever been alive are alive today. That's a lot of information, but don't panic. It's not an exact science. Hey, Shannon, how are you? Uh, I'm undecided. Undecided? That's unusual. <laughs> well, uh, come on, man. It snowed on Saturday, and then it was 90 degrees today. I can't deal with this. <laughs> yeah, you know, I think uh, by the time this show airs, it's very likely that the panhandle of Oklahoma will have broken 100. Uh, yes, and then the day after, it will be another hard freeze. So this is some crazy weather, but I guess that's why we do fun stuff like this podcast, right? If you live out here where I do, in Colorado, you possibly went back and listened to our show on downslope windstorms today. Uh, <laughs> we had sustained winds in the 20s to 30s, gusting you know, 10 to 20 knots over that at times, I'd say. Uh, uh, that sounds like every day here, but yeah, I get you. <laughs> yeah, no, we had uh, lots of things flying down the street. Trash, trash cans. <laughs> That's always a good time, man. <laughs> Oh, it was great. Uh, There's a, yeah, you can tell which way the wind is blowing, not by actually looking at the wind, but by seeing if the trash is up against my fence or the neighbor's fence. So that's, you know, north or south wind here. (laughs) So, yeah. (laughs) I hear We don't get those here. We just get west. Ah, yeah, that is true. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, good times. (laughs) Yeah, absolutely. So, you know, we were talking about what we wanted to cover this week. And I had an interesting conversation with a coworker about scientific reproducibility. And I realized it's something that you and I haven't talked about much, uh, even off the podcast. That is true. And, you know, it's funny because every time I go to say, you know, which what show am I going to write up? That's actually been on our list of show topics since the beginning. So I know this has been on your mind for quite some time. <laughs> Yeah, and I thought it would be interesting to talk about what constitutes reproducibility and what should we be focusing on as scientists trying to make reproducible work? How can we make that the most useful exercise? Because no matter what your definition of reproducibility is, it's not easy. Uh, No, and I don't think it's really on the forefront of a lot of people's minds, and I believe it absolutely should be, right? Because there's, it seems like there's more and more, as we have more and more experiments out there and more and more scientists, it seems like there's a lot of these studies that are coming out with, hey, we tried to redo this and we can't. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) And that's not good science. (laughs) No, and so when you're learning about the scientific method, one of the things that you hear is anybody anywhere should be able to reproduce your results if you're scientific about it. Right. Mm-hmm. And then that's pretty much what we know about reproducibility when you get an undergraduate degree in science. Right. Yeah. I don't even know if that's ever been actually said in any of my classes. That sounds more like something I learned in high school, AP biology, but that's about it. Yeah. So, mm-hmm. so what is your... What to you constitutes scientific reproducibility? Stuff with statistics. Um, (laughs) (laughs) I I think that, and this is, I don't know if you want to get into this. This is apart from, you know, being utterly transparent in your methods, which also, you know, overly honest methods does as a hashtag, but (laughs) actually honest methods, maybe not, um, is that, you know, anyone could pick up your same whatever in my case, could pick up, you know, a, a core that right next to the one that I have run and come up with roughly the same answer, right? So they would have gotten roughly the same magnetization that I got on my machine and reported in my paper, right? That's That would be reproducibility for me, you know, within like 10 million years if we're talking about trying to find the age of something based on PMAG. That seems Which like a reasonable thing. <laughs> it definitely shows the difference between fields. In computer science, it's like, unless you can get it out to 16 digits, there's something wrong. And you're like, oh, 10 million years. What's that? Oh, that's exactly what I thought. I was like, oh, well, I'll PMAG. Hmm, well, this is very, very arm wavy. <laughs> but it just goes to show that, you know, I don't, there's not like a definition of it, even though it's probably one of the most important things as scientists that we should be paying attention to. Right. And something there's been a lot of pressure towards lately, 
is I should be able to take, you know, your program that you wrote that looks at your data and makes the figures in your paper. And I mean, I've done this as well. Say, oh, well, you can make all the figures in my paper if you just have these notebooks that I put out. Right. And in 15 years, be able to do that. And that's right. one of the big arguments I hear against a lot of the modern tools is, you know, well, I can run my Fortran 77 code that I wrote when I was in grad school 30 years ago, and you won't be able to run this Python thing you wrote in five years because something will have changed in the ecosystem. Wow, really? I think that's an exaggeration on both ends. But still, that's that's very interesting. Hmm. But I don't think that's reproducibility. Okay. And All so right. this this is where the conversation that I had with my coworker, and uh, he had sort of started this idea about it's not the tool, it's not that exact result. Okay, so methods versus data. Right. So you should be able to tell me what you did, and sure, provide me with what you did. That's great. But what if you did it wrong? So yeah, I can run your same program, and if you have a bug, I'm going to get the same wrong result. So okay. you you need to provide me with the data and what you did such that I could sit down at a computer 50 years from now that has none of the programming languages you had and code up my own way to do it and get the same result. Right, absolutely. That's that's where my comment about you know overly honest methods but for re like that's that would be my idea of repro reproducibility too. Not on the same tools or platform or whatever it is that you use, but the actual same, well, I would say same data, but I guess you've thrown that little monkey wrench of correct data in there. Yeah, and so, you know, if, sure, Jupyter Notebooks, which are what I love to use, and they're a fantastic project, I'm not knocking them or any tool in any way here, they let you do a great job of documenting what you're doing in line with your program or your analysis or whatever you're doing. That is reproducibility. Mm -hmm. Having this massive infrastructure of, well, you just install my Docker container and you'll be able to run this 30 years from now isn't. So right. that's a lot of time that, sure, it's nice to have that, but that doesn't really constitute the core of reproducibility. It, it centers around that documentation. Yes. Mm -hmm. Yeah, exactly. And so, you know, if I got some data from your lab, is there enough metadata in there for me to be able to reproduce what you did in a paper? No. <laughs> oh, and that's that's the story for most people, I think. Yeah, I think, I think so. I think so. I mean, but where does this kind of stuff belong you know what i mean is this something that you think belongs in every paper or should this kind of thing belong on your research group's website where people can find it if they want to because this is where you get into the whole i mean because you know publishing is money right and you don't want every paper can't be a geospheres paper that's 15 to 20 30 pages long yeah so i'll go somewhere in between uh, I don't think you should be putting your data on your own personal website. Okay. Your website will not persist. I've tried to go back and look at papers from the 70s or even from the 90s. <laughs> Do you think any of those URLs and those papers from the 90s are valid? No, exactly. Well, unless they're, <laughs> unless they're citing PMAG software, and they totally are because that's all we have. <laughs> <laughs> so... To me, that or the standard thing used to be data is available via FTP transfer from the author. <laughs> I've done that as well. That's not okay <laughs> because <laughs> then somebody sends you a request 10 years later and you look at this pile of hard drives on your bookshelf and you go, oh, crap. <laughs> or what's even worse <laughs> is pile of zip disks on your bookshelf. <laughs> or tapes. <laughs> So we had, we had a community member, somebody requested some archive satellite data, and they said, yes. sure enough, we have it. We have this four-door filing cabinet full of tapes. 
Yes, that's what I used to work on was those radar tapes. Yep. <laughs> so yeah, the data's there, but is it useful? <laughs> right. And is there enough metadata with it? So if somebody goes and downloads data from an experiment that I did during my PhD work, or that a sample that you did during your PhD work, mm-hmm. did we include enough information with that data for it to be useful? See, this is so interesting because for my, in I mean, in my point of view, but also, you know, like in my studies, all I need to know is where you got your rock from. You know what I mean? Like I, if I have your final output of data, in this case, a orthogonal projection diagram showing, um, showing the magnetization, declination and inclination, that's all I need and where your rock came from. And I can reproduce that, but I'm guessing that those, th- those are two tiny pieces of information, but I'm guessing, you know, that's not true for everyone else. Well, so you, you hit on exactly where I wanted to go. <laughs> You're unknowingly. welcome. <laughs> and we should do a podcast together. <laughs> we should. <laughs> because we're not looking at an outline for this one. Um, <laughs> we are not. <laughs> so you said, if I have your final data. Mm-hmm. There's a lot that went into taking a drill into the field and collecting a core sample to producing that final Ziderfeld plot that you're looking at. Okay. Yeah, that's true. Right. So what about the raw data? What if I want to reprocess your data because there's a new technique or a better technique? Or I don't believe that you did that right. Oh, okay. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so what if I want to reprocess your raw data? Is there enough information with that for me to be able to reproduce what you did? You tell me. You're the one rebuilding my magnetometer software. (laughs) 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 And that speaks to another thing of I bet most people don't know. Yeah. And what even constitutes your raw data? Exactly. This rock that I have in my hand. (laughs) And so, for example... Uh, in the world of rock testing, you might have a machine that you put your rock in and you start squeezing it. And let's say it spits out a bunch of numbers uh, that are displacement in millimeters and load in kilonewtons. Okay. There will be people, uh, and I would probably be somewhere among them, that that's not raw data. Okay. You applied a calibration factor to get that data. Mm-hmm. So it's not raw. Well, what, what you actually measured was a voltage coming down a wire from a transducer. That's raw data. Ah, yeah. And, and yes, exactly right. Now, is that a useful distinction? Probably not. No. <laughs> Unless not I say, I don't believe your calibration, and yeah. I have no way to go back and calibrate an instrument you had 15 years ago. Right. There you go. So... In that sense, okay, maybe that's not a useful distinction, but in your case, you know, what if, what if I want to get the raw XYZ magnetic field measurements and reprocess them? Or I, I go and I drill your site and I recollect that data on my magnetometer and I now want to publish a comparison paper and I want to include your data. How do I get that? Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah, because exactly. most of the time it comes down to you get your ruler out or you open Adobe Illustrator and you take a screenshot of the graph and you try to guess where the points are. <laughs> Have you been in our lab? Oh, wait. <laughs> <laughs> That's in a lot of fields, though, because the raw data tables aren't included. And in a lot of modern papers with large amounts of data, you can't. Right. Um, I will say... Okay, well, I mean, this is the raw data, but I will say that in PMAG, you know, a lot of times, well, I guess it isn't the full data table. We have data tables, but you're right. It's still, you know, points that we've applied, you know, principal component analysis to. It's not right. what got spit out of the machine. So, hmm. Yeah, okay. So in you. my last... In, in a paper I recently submitted, I tried the experiment, and we'll see if it works or not, of 
I'm going to produce a supplemental text file that goes with the paper that is literally the XY data that makes every plot. Okay. So you don't have my raw data, you know, my my time series that is 16 million points. You're more than welcome to go get it if you want, but I will acknowledge it might be difficult for you to make meaningful sense out of it because it's complicated and huge. Right. But if you just want to take your data and put it on top of my plot, here's the XY points you need. Ah, okay. Yeah. Mm -hmm. I gotcha. And, you know, in Paleo Mag, we have this thing called the, (laughs) of course, it's called the magic database. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Um, But it's definitely not something, and it is, it's the Magnetics Information Consortium, so magic. Um, It's not something everyone contributes to, but it was made in an effort by paleomagnetist and also geomagnetist and rock magnetist, which are all different things we could talk about at one point in time, <laughs> um, <laughs> it, to do this, especially because, I mean, for those of you not involved, I mean, paleomagnetism is called paleomagic because a lot of people don't understand how it works. And it seems like it is sort of this magical thing that happens, right? You stick this rock in this machine and you get this age of the rock out, right? Um, And so there's been this effort to create this database where people can do this because it is, while the gathering of the data is something that's automated and feasibly if we all had the same machine, it'd work exactly the same, but the actual, you know, massaging the data out, so getting something from the data, is very subjective. Um, They made this repository for your data, and I think it might be different what everyone puts in there, whether they put their already processed data, whether they put the raw data, but at least least it's a start, I guess. Yeah, no, I think that's a great start, and you know, if if there were some standard way to go from raw data to process data with an explanation of what you did, but, you know, no standards work, so you make another standard, and then people don't like that one, so they make another standard. And right. There's yeah. an XKCD comic about this. <laughs> yes. <laughs> um, and, and the other thing I wish, and I mean, maybe this is a little too communist of me, but I kind of wish, like, if you're going to publish a paper with PMAG data... Like, it doesn't get published until you put it into the data repository. Well, so there are restrictions. Any AGU journal now, your data has to be publicly available and linked in some sort of public repository before they'll publish your paper. Yeah, but that goes back to the whole, like, here it is on this, you know, URL that isn't going to exist a month from now, right? Right. It's not ideal. Yeah. I mean, Uh, that's a good start, but... Well, and the other issue is, for example, Penn State started a project called Scholarsphere, mm-hmm. which was going to be operated by the libraries. So you give us your data. It is the library's job, because they're good at making things accessible for long periods of time, to figure out how to make sure your data is always linked somewhere. Okay. And it's like, okay, that's that's a great idea. Okay, how do I submit data? Well... You click upload data set, and then you click upload files, and then you fill out this, you know, description of what every file is, and then you group them into experiments, and yeah, okay, that's fantastic, but with no automated way to do that, there's no way I could put my PhD data there, not to mention oh, the maximum file size is a couple gigabytes because that's what most people can reasonably work with. Mm-hmm. And a lot of modern science is much bigger than that. <gasps> Not PMAG. Ours are tiny. But yes. True. Yeah, exactly. Like if you have any kind of image, right, you're not going to be able to do anything. I mean, a, a run of the GFS weather model is hundreds of gigs. A run. A run. <laughs> yep. Nice. So meteorologist hogging all the bandwidth. Yeah, I mean, you say, okay, I did, uh, I did my project on this particular storm, and I did some reanalysis of the model data, and I looked at some radar data, 
And here's the terabyte of data that went into this figure in this paper. Who is going to store that long term? Right. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. And how are you going to have that in some useful way so that 10 years from now somebody could actually go look at it? Because it's not a big text file. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Hmm. This is... This is an interesting problem that I hadn't put any more thought into other than reproducibility should exist, you know? Yeah, and it's it's something interesting to grapple with because it could even come down to, okay, I processed my data using this software. Okay, what version? Right. Because something changed in between versions or... There have been, you know, things that have been traced down to obscurities like compiler bugs on a certain processor architecture. Oh, my gosh. (laughs) I mean, you can go really far down the rabbit hole, but taking three steps back to the level of practical reality, there are a couple of papers that I've tried to reproduce figures from. Oh, you know, okay, we wrote this simple model, and here's the output. And I have not been able to do it on a single one of them without emailing the author for more information. No kidding. It's not because the author was lazy. It's because it's really hard to put all the information in there when you're so close to the topic. Uh, So I thought this was really interesting. Like when we talked about Earth Archive and, you know, why do you or, you know, Archive for Physics, you know, why would you put this out there? you know, and the whole, what does peer editing do? But it's like, there is somebody somewhere that's going to read this, right? This is how Wikipedia actually works, right? So somebody's going to want to do this and keep people accountable. And so, you know, yeah, it should be out there. It's not like if you put it out there, it's just going to sit there. You know, maybe somebody is going to look at it. Absolutely. And most of the time when I tried to do this, it was very... You know, I email them and say, hey, I'm trying to I'm trying to reproduce this thing out of your paper and I'm getting something close, but it's not quite there. Can you tell me what you used for this constant? It, it, it can come down to something as simple as what value did you use for radius of the earth? Oh, wow. Okay. <laughs> because maybe you rounded it, <laughs> you know, yep. or maybe mm-hmm. you used it out to six decimal places and that makes a difference for me. <laughs> That is pretty interesting, yeah. I like the fact that it seems like this is gaining, you know, gaining, I not recognition, but, you know, more scientists think that this is a big deal now. And I don't know, I would like you to speak to the fact that, so this magic database and stuff, there's a bunch on here with Jupyter Notebooks and GitHub. I mean, are those things that you think are going to be around in terms of we're talking about where should this stuff live? Is that stuff around for a long time? So Jupyter Notebooks will be around for a long time, yes. There are They are not... I'm not going to say that necessarily what you want to say, yes, because I provide you this Jupyter Notebook, you'll be able to run this 10 years in the future. Right. But Jupyter Notebooks fundamentally are a text file that's written in what's called the JSON format. Okay. So you can open it up in just a plain old text editor and read it. It's okay. not superhuman readable, but you can read it. Uh, and a web browser can render it. So I think that's good. It's sort of like you know a PDF or just a plain .txt file. I can read a .txt file that was written in the 70s. Right, exactly. Uh, so there's that piece. Mm-hmm. The uh, the GitHub part, we, we actually were talking about this at work today, saying, can you believe GitHub's 10 years old? <laughs> and somebody else said, can you believe Uber's 10 years old? <gasps> what? Yeah. <laughs> No, no, I can't. <laughs> yeah. Oh, wow. So, That's really interesting. I remember when we had our code on Google Code or on SourceForge or on Bitbucket. Yeah. So I mean, things things will move. Yeah. But when they move, is it still a relevant thing at that time? Like, you know, is that piece of software still maintained when GitHub no longer exists anyway? Yeah. Yeah, that's true. 
Mm-hmm. And this is just the whole, as humans, we're not built for this kind of rapid change, right? And I think we're still struggling to to deal with how you how you do it. Oh, I think so. Totally. Yeah. And um, I don't know. It's it's when I look at it, even though I don't you know, know how to deal with all of this information, really, it is nice that at least it's there. You know, and it makes me sad that like my my group doesn't really contribute to this as much as they probably should. Well, that's the other thing, too, is it shouldn't be to be a scientist. Let's say you're a biologist. And, you know, you do your lab experiment and you do your gels or whatever technique you're using. You take your pictures of them. You should not need to be a programmer to archive your data so somebody else can use it in the future. Right. Yeah. Mm -hmm. That is where we need more software engineers. And that's where things like the NumFocus Foundation are stepping up and trying desperately to make things like this easier. Right. Exactly. So there was a TED Talk. If you listen to our uh, podcast, you know I'm obsessed with those, uh, our podcast episode, (laughs) Um, (laughs) by E.O. Wilson. And it is titled, if you want to go listen to it, it's titled Advice to a Young Scientist. And so this is something that he talks about in there a lot, which is, you know, you don't have to know everything. You think as this young scientist, and I still, as a not as young scientist, think this too. Like, I want to know how to do all those things. I want to know, I feel like I should know how to program and do all this other stuff in addition to the other things that I do. And E.O. Wilson, who is a very famous scientist, says, no, you go to the dude in the math department or the computer department and you say, hey, I have all this data. I want to run the statistics on it. You're a statistician. Let's do this together. He's like, that's what science is, is let's do this together. Yeah, and I mean, you need to have a, a very basic working knowledge, right? So right. you can say, I need some help doing this analysis or I really need a piece of software that does this and I'm happy to learn how to run it and know the basics, but I'm not going to write a competent web application. Right. Uh, mm-hmm. Yeah. So I, I think having broad but shallow is a change. <laughs> yes. Yes, exactly. Um, that's a very interesting point, but I, I find myself, I'm, I'm nervous to, you know, talk to people about that kind of stuff too, you know, and everyone's busy and that's always a thing too. But, you know, if we do this kind of stuff together, uh, what was the foundation that you said is working on this? Uh, well, so NumFocus. So they are working heavily in the Python ecosystem to make sure that these things are maintainable. And so maybe not working so much to make sure that it's, easy though they do contribute to jupiter mm-hmm. uh, it, there was an interesting talk a while back if i can find it i'll link it in the show notes of so okay you use python and you make a plot that goes into a paper lots of people are using python now mm-hmm. did you realize that that plot the code to make that plot and the code that does all of the array math that goes under that plot and a lot of the other graphics engines and things that drive that are maintained in people's free time (laughs) or written in people's free time. The whole scientific ecosystem of Python rests on the shoulders of a few paid people and a few volunteers. That's very interesting. So some of these projects have rather low, what we call a bus number. Mm Mm-hmm how many people need to get into an altercation with a bus for the project to totally die. <laughs> and this is why I give to Wikipedia when they ask me to. <laughs> <laughs> yes. So it's, it's sort of a pessimistic view. Yeah. But it's, we really need to, like you said, work together to make this ecosystem And then there's the little bit darker side of scientific reproducibility, which is where you email the author and say, hey, I'm trying to reproduce your work. Can I have some more information or some more data? And the reply is, no, that's proprietary to my research group. Oh, yes. Yeah. And we run into that a lot because we work with a lot of companies in our department. And it's a real big sticking point without, you know, getting too into it um, with 
the faculty, I think. Because some people say, you know, this is, you've got these students, and this is just within the people sitting down in the room, right? You know, you have a student, and you're supposed to evaluate as a committee member for a master's thesis, which is mostly what we do, right? And so you're sitting there, and no one else in the room that this person is presenting to, which you have to present your work, as that's part of actually getting your master's, no one else is privy to this information on which you're basing all of your justifications, conclusions, everything. Because it's proprietary information that the company has said you cannot present this, nor can you publish it. Right. So all of that rests on basically your advisor saying, yeah, you're okay. Or in the materials testing world, somebody comes in, they say, I need this piece of metal tested. Or I need this cut, or I need some... Okay, what is it? Metal X. <laughs> or what about this rock sample well, okay well where's it from so i can get some... doesn't matter yeah. <laughs> you know and that's difficult or i i have had one instance of hey i would like to reproduce this analysis from your paper can you send me your your matlab file that you use to do this data reduction because i'm not getting anything close and the replies no it's it's too complicated for you to be able to get, which translates to this is a really messy file, and I'm not sure if it actually does it right. <laughs> that's beautiful. Yeah, and that's I mean it is terrifying to put stuff like that out there, but I've had people email me from papers and say, "Hey, I was trying to do this, and I got something a little different." And I looked and said, "You know, you're right. I, I scaled it wrong." And it's, there's a difference between, it's okay to be wrong, uh, but I don't think it's okay to hide your methods and your data so nobody can ever test what you said. Exactly. Yeah. And, and this is hard. This is really hard. And this is completely a totally human thing of you know no one wants to be told they're wrong but I think it happens more like what you said you know and less like you're so wrong about this you know I can't believe how dumb you are you shouldn't even be here it's like oh hey I don't know if you noticed this happened you know what I mean yeah which is so much nicer <laughs> but I think so many people are stymied by the fact of someone's going to attack them and, you know, think they're stupid. And it's like, I go to all these, you know, new scientist things and women in science things. And it all boils down to even the people at the very top are still afraid of that. So it makes us all better if you put it out there. As opposed to, you know, maybe, yeah, somebody's going to be a jerk to you sometimes. That even happens to some of the feedback that we get on this podcast, right? But overwhelmingly, it's not. And so it makes it okay. Oh, absolutely. And it's in an ideal world, we would all be impartial. We have an idea, we test it, we give an unbiased evaluation of the results. And then if somebody later proves that that was wrong, we didn't have the complete picture, we go, oh, you're right. But we're humans, like you said. And we have some pride and some ego on the line. And somebody will say, you know, I tested it and I think it happens this way. And that is how the Bone Wars started, or other <laughs> similar things. Exactly, exactly. <laughs> and then it starts to get nasty, but... <laughs> yeah. It may not have started that way. <laughs> yes. <laughs> yeah, hmm. that's very interesting. Um, I'm really going to look into this whole, you know, numb focus. That's very, that's very interesting, and it makes me... Whenever I start to get, you know, down about science and all that kind of stuff, to think that there are people that do this stuff, you know, this is them building it in their free time for all of us. And I feel that way about Wikipedia. I know some people really hate Wikipedia. And I'm not like, you know, 100% Wikipedia is always right. That's not what I mean. But I mean, just the thought of what Wikipedia is, is really cool, right? Yeah, it it, it is. And it's something that we should strive for in science to have, you know, the Wikipedia of data from your papers. 
Exactly. Or the Wikipedia of methods. Exactly. And I mean, it comes up against, there is a lot to be hashed out with. It comes up against, you know, corporations and trying to do proprietary work. That's hard. Well, it's a hard thing. There's nothing wrong with proprietary work if you're a corporation. Where it is a problem is if you are working on publicly funded work. Absolutely. Or working in publicly funded spaces. Right. So if, if you work on an NSF grant, it is now a requirement that your data and everything about your work be open for anybody. And sometimes you get a moratorium period, say you go on a drilling exposition or something. Okay, there's a year where you're the only person that gets to look at that data, and if there's anything really exciting, you get to publish it, and then it is required that everybody else be able to get to it. That's not always followed. Right. Right. And it should be. And it should be, but that's... And if it's not going to be, then that's something that... Yeah, you know, if you're not going to get your stuff released within a year or two years even, like, then maybe that student shouldn't work on that as a master's thesis, you know, something like that. Maybe that's something we need to think about, too. Yeah, I mean, the data management plan section of a proposal needs to go from a paragraph of boilerplate to a couple pages about how you're really going to make sure that your data are useful to other people, because it doesn't make sense for the taxpayers to pay large amounts of money for you to collect all of this data that two people on the face of the planet can understand or use. Exactly. And I feel like we're sort of going that way with broader impacts, maybe not a ton, but a little bit. And it's the same thing. You know, what, what does this mean to people who are ultimately paying? And, and then maybe we wouldn't have so much of the attacks on science that we have. Absolutely. And, and I'm not trying to say that this is a solved problem and it's easy and you just have to go do it because it's not. <laughs> no, not even close. <laughs> I mean, you, you go and look at papers that either of us have published and there are definitely sections where you would be thin stretched to try to reproduce exactly our method from what's there. Right. Yeah, exactly. And that's not, that's not even close to being the exception to the rule. No. Uh, so. So it's not a solved problem, but it's something that I think we should all strive for and try to think about, yeah, I'm collecting this data right now, but in 30 years, there might be some poor master's student who's desperately trying to find a couple more pieces of data to put on their plot so they can get to some significant results so they can graduate and get a job. And the fact that you took an extra day to make that data set available and documented might help them out. Right. Yep. Exactly. Exactly. I like where we're going. I think this is really uplifting as opposed to whenever I looked at that in the notes of reproducibility, I would get sad. Right. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Because, yeah. Yeah. I think the community can do this and we should do this. And people who don't understand what we do should be pushing for this to be done. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah, so I never get mad at that. I know a lot of scientists do, but I don't. I think that's great. We should be held accountable. Mm-hmm. So. And not to mention, sometimes it's fun to go pull people's data and play with it. <laughs> Sounds so personal. Yeah. So <laughs> Get their hands you, out of my data. <laughs> you, you see something in a paper and you're like, huh, that's kind of funny. I wish I could see this part of the plot a little closer. Oh, I'm going to go grab the data. And I'm going to make this plot. And, hmm, that's interesting. Let, let me try to run, you know, a Spectra on that. Or, like, it's just kind of fun to go mess with it and see what little pieces you can tease out or how you can get a deeper understanding of their work, which they're still going to get credit for. Right. Yes, exactly. And I think the majority of people would be more than happy to field, you know, reasonably reasonably worded accommodations right hey i didn't quite get this can you explain blah blah as opposed to you know you're wrong you're dumb you shouldn't be a scientist i don't think that happens very much oh yeah and that's the thing i don't think scientists realize at least didn't several years ago and maybe is coming back now of making your data so it's publisher parish out there right 
Yes, absolutely. You, you, you have to have impact. Making mm-hmm. your data available does not go against that in any way, shape, or form. Making no. your data available means more people are going to use it and more people are going to cite you. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah, that's, that is, I think that is an old scientist way of thinking that I feel like just from talking to my scientist friends is going away. Yeah. And I I know it's not completely going away, but I like the fact that that's not the protecting yourself and your data is not the first thing people, people think of now. Now people are like, oh, hey, where should this, you know, sit so people can look at it? And our, I mean, the Earth Archive, that's one thing right there, right? There's nothing to say that someone can't pill for you if they're really fast, you know? Right. <laughs> <laughs> but that's not, that's not what it's for, and that's not what's happening. Well, and you've got organizations like IRIS where, okay, there's an earthquake. There, there was just an earthquake in Oklahoma. Mm-hmm. Uh, so minutes after that event happens... I can run a script and go pull seismic data from all around the country and make plots and do analysis, and it's all free and easy to get to. Yeah. That makes them look good. Yes, exactly. Exactly. That's fantastic. Yeah, that's that's, where I think reproducibility stands and where I think I stand on it, though just like, you know, what license is best for software projects or whether you should write your papers in, you know, plain text or Latin (laughs) or word or (laughs) tech or whatever, it's going to evolve as we go along. But I think we did a pretty good job of sort of ferreting out where we stand on it. Yeah, I think so too. And I think it's something that you need to stop and sit back and think about this stuff once in a while, right? I mean, which is the whole point of going and having a beer and having these discussions, right? Is that... Although this isn't always at the forefront of your mind, you need to stop and think about what you're doing, not just trudging through it and getting it done. Absolutely. Yeah. So I think that we should move on to everybody's favorite segment of the show. Fun Paper Friday. Yay! (laughs) Now you picked this fun paper that I have also had downloaded for quite some time just (laughs) in my back pocket. And I love it because the title, Chickens Prefer Beautiful Humans. <laughs> By Gerlanda et al. Yes. <laughs> oh, ridiculous. <laughs> so interestingly enough, the methods section of this paper is really good. <laughs> uh, yeah, this was hysterical. So sometimes I just skip the methods when I don't care. But this one was, I, I read the methods much slower and with more deliberation than I did the rest of the paper. <laughs> yeah. So, <laughs> because what does this mean? <laughs> well, I, it's that chickens think that some a face that's more exaggerated male or female instead of more neutral is more beautiful. <laughs> Which means they peck it more. So I don't know what that means either. <laughs> And this is, you know, supposed to be somehow analogous to saying that humans' preferences are similar to that of chickens and that they're a property of the nervous system. <laughs> yeah, so this is weird. Um, <laughs> it's really weird. I really want to see the experimental setup. So in the effort of, you know, having all your data out there, I wish that there was a picture of this. Yeah. So, <laughs> so they take a bunch of people's pictures and average them. So mm-hmm. you get an average male face and an average female face that has characteristics of lots of people in it. Right. And then if you average those, you get what they consider to be a gender neutral face. Mm-hmm. And then they enhance the male and female characteristics. So you've got this plot, figure 1A, that goes from a very, very stern serial killer looking face. <laughs> A little bit. (laughs) On the far left. Through to the actual average male face, to the gender neutral face, to all the way on the right, a very plastic surgery enhanced female face. Mm -hmm. Yep. Yep. So you've got on the left, this the square jaw, the thick, firm eyebrows, and on the right, very puffy cheeks, very puffy lips, very fine eyebrows, exaggerated eyes. Mm 
Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And this is a, this is oh, a creepy good. mishmash of male to female weirdness, though. <laughs> I don't like this. <laughs> it is. It's it's kind of disturbing. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It's very strange. <laughs> and but but it but it's extremes, right? Right. Yeah, exactly. And I mean, the way they showed these to chickens was really interesting. And the way people, they also showed them to people too, right? Yeah. So you put chickens in a cage and you have a touchscreen in front of them because why not? <laughs> well, I mean, a peck screen, not a touchscreen, but yeah. <laughs> yeah. And so you would flash one of these pictures up and if they tapped it, if it was of the opposite sex of the chicken, then they would have five seconds where the screen would go white and they could eat food. It was five or 10 seconds. It was five, yeah. Five. Yeah. I love this. It's like hens were rewarded for pecking the male face and the cocks were rewarded for pecking the female face. Like, really? Come on. <laughs> and so they would get their little food treat and then the screen would go black for two seconds and then another picture would show. And they would do this until either the average peck rate went way down, the chickens were tired, or 40 to 45 minutes. Man, wouldn't you love to be the uh, the undergrad that had to sit there and watch this for 40 minutes? <laughs> I'm wondering how much of it was, you know, you click go on this LabVIEW program and then go get a burger. Yeah, I would hope so. But, you know, I'd make my students sit there. <laughs> yeah, like you do in the PMAG lab. Uh, exactly. <laughs> so true. <laughs> and, then, and then they had uh, undergrad students who apparently needed extra credit. Uh-huh, yeah. <laughs> come in and rate these faces as well as, you know, very male or very female. So they don't say that the experimental setup was, you know, the same, but I really like to think it was <laughs> Yeah. for, for the undergrads. <laughs> yes. You, you peck the face on the touchscreen and exactly. you get five seconds to drink as much beer as you can. Exactly. <laughs> Man, you have people lining up around the block for that. Which would introduce the interesting factor of time variable results. Ha! Ah, we all know what those are. <laughs> so, they then uh, have a plot which absolutely stuns me. That it's in Excel? <laughs> no. Okay. <laughs> Figure 1B. Yeah. Yeah. So, chickens and people, right on. They're exactly the same, nearly. R squared of 0.96 nine, or 98? 98. 98. 98. Yeah, R squared of 0.98. <laughs> that was crazy. I had to read that twice. I'm like, are you, what, are you serious? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Unbelievable. <laughs> I mean, this is so weird. Why would this happen? <laughs> Yeah, so could the paper have been titled, you know, do chickens and undergrads have the same preference in the opposite sex? <laughs> yes, R squared <laughs> 0.98. Or is this signaling something deeper, what they're indicating, that really our selection of the opposite sex is really a neural thing that's wired in? How weird is that? Yeah. Mm-hmm. And I, I love that, um, so they're moving forward as, you know, they say that they should use faces of children and old people <laughs> should be employed as unrewarded stimuli <laughs> to <Right>. better approximate <laughs> human experiences and preferences. <laughs> well, I, I was slightly unsatisfied by the, does our data prove that this is a neural hardwiring? And the answer is no. Right. The rebuttal was, but it also doesn't prove it's not. Not, I know. <laughs> I was like, oh, well, that's beautiful. <laughs> <laughs> right. Talk about covering your butts there. I mean, sure, okay, you can do an Occam's razor type. Okay, a little simplest explanation that this is just hardwired. Okay, fine. But <laughs> I, I found that a very matter-of-fact presentation. Yeah, I thought so too. <laughs> I did highlight that sentence. <laughs> yeah. 
But I mean, this is this is really strange. This is really strange. And they say in here, which is obviously the most interesting, and I don't know if there are follow-up studies. This paper is over 10 years old. Um, you know, this method's relevant not only to the study of human faces, but it can be applied to any communication system to evaluate whether its evolution has favored information transfer or whether it's a product of receiver biases. That's really interesting. Yeah, so, they, I mean, you can start going deep into what is information. <laughs> right, and, yeah, exactly. Mm-hmm. Yeah, see the embedded episode talking with the author of the Claude Shannon biography. <laughs> yes. <laughs> yes, exactly. <laughs> uh, yeah. Hmm. Chickens and people, man. So, basically, <laughs> basically, the, the whole moral of this story is if you want a wingman. <laughs> oh, <laughs> How long did you have to think up that one? It just came to me, <laughs> but I was really excited. <laughs> well, you know, I, so this paper, we said it's over 10 years old, and we just earlier said, well, you know, Uber is 10 years old, so this paper's older than Uber, which to some people <laughs> makes it ancient. Uh, <laughs> so true. So now I was thinking if this paper were written today, would the training data set be chickens pecking at a tinder? application on a phone god i hope so <laughs> because then you have a directly comparable data set between underground you and absolutely the do oh man you do that's fantastic you know see this is what they talk about like this uber data set has economists like going insane because it's just perfect right so there's all these economic analysis of uber and such a long time period and such a robust data set so yeah exactly tender could do this too i've got the perfect title for the paper (laughs) chicken tenders chicken tenders exactly (laughs) (laughs) oh i'm gonna need you to do a statistical analysis on how many chicken papers we've had (laughs) Yeah. Because it seems like it seems like a bunch. <laughs> yeah, we've had the chicken with the stick stuck on them walking like the dinosaur. And... <laughs> exactly. And I remember there was one like chicken figure in some <laughs> some video game that was my favorite figure for a long time. <laughs> yeah. So uh, Oh man. Well yeah. if if you happen to have chickens and a smartphone <laughs> and decide to do your own chicken tender analysis. We would absolutely love to see your results and help you publish them. <sighs> Shannon, how can they get a hold of us? <laughs> Send us your chicken tinder pics at show at don'tpanicgeocast.com or just perplex everyone and uh, send them to us on Twitter. We're at don'tpanicgeo. John is at geo underscore Lehman. I am at Shannon Doolin. Um, you can come into our Slack chat room on the softwareunderground.org, the Don't Panic channel. And thank you to our Patreon supporters. And if you have any extra cash, you could buy an Uber or you could uh, send it to us. So patreon.com <laughs> slash don't panic geo. And until next week, remember, don't panic. It's not an exact science. Any opinions, findings, conclusions, or recommendations expressed are solely ours and do not necessarily reflect the views of our employers or funding agencies. Ah, <laughs>